0: all right good morning, good morning. Uh, welcome to the second week of the gospel and work uh, for those of you who were not here last week or if we haven't met my name is Adam McGarry and I'm the husband of Sarah McGarry father of Joshua, Caleb, Abigail and Joanna and we've been at Delray for about a year and members since August and I just started my 20th year working in the United States Congress uh, currently advising a congressman from Colorado the last, uh, this is a two-week Foundations class based on a previous seven-week class uh, here at Del Rey and grounded in several fantastic books listed on the handout. Last week, we examined uh, how work fits into the gospel story, uh, and our focus this week shifts to how the gospel shapes how we work. This is a Foundations class and not an exhaustive study on the doctrine of work or vocation. However, I've attempted to consolidate some of the critical uh, considerations to equip us to view our God, ourselves, and our work rightly as revealed in Scripture. And so while today's class may not address uh, your specific challenge with work at the moment, whether it be persecution or how to handle conflict with a non-Christian coworker or walking through a specific ethical challenge, the books listed on the handout do provide more breadth and depth than we can cover today. And certainly, uh, any of the elders would be happy to uh, think through, walk through, and pray through uh, any of those challenges that you have. Uh, With that, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Well, Father God, we thank you again for the opportunity to come together. Um, We thank you for the freedom to meet uh, without fear, to open your word, which you have uh, preserved for us these thousands of years We thank you for the instruction contained uh, inside your word. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity this morning to reflect on your work on the cross and what it means for us uh, and how we are to live and how we are to work in light of that. May this uh, study and may my words be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So a quick review uh, for those who weren't here last week. Uh, Last week we learned that we have two types of callings uh, upon our lives. The primary calling to faith and repentance and secondary callings that include our different roles uh, in our families, our churches, our neighborhoods, and our workplace. We were reminded of the two great commandments, to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. How we spend our time from 9 to 5 during the work week is how many Americans define themselves, but that typically accounts for less than 40% of our time. And as Christians, we are defined by more than 40% of our time. We were given salvation not based on our merit or our works, but as a gift of God by grace, through faith, um, in the work of Jesus Christ. We learn that in all things we are to work heartily because we were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand, us, beforehand for us to walk in. And as such, we are not just working for men, but working for the Lord. So for whom we work... Why we work and how we work matters more than where we work or what we accomplish in our work. Work is not a byproduct of the fall. It predates the fall. God is a worker and created man in his own image and placed him within his creation to continue his work of creating, protecting, providing, and bringing order from chaos. Work was good and fulfilling because it was done in God's presence for his glory and primarily involved reaping his overflow blessings. But work in the world does not resemble this now. Why do we not view work this way today? The biggest problem is man exchanged the dignity of work for the depravity of sin. We rejected the freedom of working within God's design for the bondage of chasing after our heart's desires. We lost the connection between our work and our worship uh, of, of God through our work. And just as our rejection of God changes everything, Jesus' is coming to seek and save the lost also changes everything. So let's take a closer look at the toils, trials, and temptations of our work after the fall, and then the good news of the redemption, redefinition, and reward of Christ's work on the cross. As you think about your work and your job today, what are some of the things that make your work feel toilsome?
1: Like or love, but there are parts that are just tedious and mm-hmm.
0: non-challenging. They're just busy
1: stuff that you have to do, and, and it's not pleasing to you. It's mm-hmm. good, <laughs> Micah. How about? So maybe relationships with coworkers? That
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a challenge, Josh.
1: Just getting to your
0: workplace. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> it. <Trastic>. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Anybody else?
2: The sense that we have to get it done.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Pressure of work. Yeah. Yeah?
1: Just repetition.
0: Mm-hmm. Same task. Mendacity.
1: The body.
0: Yeah. The body.
1: Work this hard on
0: the body. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Let's go back to where this all started. Uh, Genesis 3:17 through 19. Um, and if, uh, if I could have a volunteer to read that.
1: the sweat of your face shall eat bread till you return to the ground for of it, for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return.
0: Thank you. So what are the three main consequences we see for man uh, from this passage? How does work change as a result? Okay,
1: thorns and thistles and
0: children. Mm-hmm. So futility in our work. Ground's cursed. Mm-hmm. It becomes hard, toilsome, and we have to do it. It's compulsory for survival, and we will repeat this cycle until we die and return to dust. We also see that things don't work the way they're supposed to. The marital relationship now has strife. Childbirth is now painful. The ground itself is cursed. That is why the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God in Romans 8.18. Because it was also subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, man. So the curse affected not just man and his relationship with God, but man's relationship with this Earth and his fellow men. Now things break. Accidents happen. Diseases spread, pets die. People die. Technology fails. Natural disasters wreak havoc. Deadlines are missed because of others failing to fulfill their promises. We devise plans we think are perfect only to have them canceled due to budget constraints. And unless we somehow strike it rich, we will basically work for our daily bread until our bodies break down. And if this is all we know life to be, then I don't blame those who live according to Isaiah 22:13. Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. But we know there's more to life than this. If this is your first Sunday with us, or you know yourself not to be a Christian, we are glad you have joined us to hear the good news about work. And that might seem counterintuitive to you, but as we just saw, God had a perfect design for work. Work was good because work is part of God's character, but we rebelled against God's good design for work and that resulted in the toil that we experience today. The good news is that God didn't end the story there. He made a way for man to be reconciled to him. But it would take him sending his son Jesus to live the life that we failed to live and die the death that our rebellion deserved. He paid our price on the cross, but through his death and resurrection, we are now offered the gracious gift of a new life, including a new purpose for our work and the opportunity to ourselves be raised from the dead when Jesus returns. And at that time, all of this toil, futility, Death itself will pass away, and all things will be made new, including our bodies and our work, as God has promised." And I know anyone here would be happy to talk with you further about that. Let's now uh, look at two particular temptations of work. Uh, And on the handout, uh, this is a big letter B under uh, the first point. If you think back to the Luke 4 account of the temptation of Jesus, the devil offers him a kingdom without the price of the cross. All he needed to do was worship Him. But Jesus replies, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. We see frequently in the Old Testament that Israel followed the pattern of receiving blessings and instruction from God, then leaving God to follow the idols of their neighbors, only to cry out to God when punishment arrived. In Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God calls Israel out for its adulterous heart. James seems focused on us when warning Christians against worldliness and pursuing our own passions. In James 4, verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The Apostle John concludes his first epistle with the assurance of of eternal life. But he signs off with the following figurative mic drop. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Thud. Likewise, Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 10.14 to flee from idolatry. So why all these warnings about idolatry and adulterous hearts? We were also uh, made for worship, Um, worship of God as image-bearers created to continue his work. So we will always be worshiping something. We talked about losing the ability to worship God through our work as a result of the fall last week, at least working for God in our own strength. So if we're not worshiping God through our work, maybe we are worshiping work as our idol. As Christians, we are not immune from losing focus and resorting to idol worship. For us, an idol is anything that we desire more than we desire Jesus. We see that clearly in Luke 18, 22, with the rich young ruler. Jesus is listening to this this guy describe how meticulously he has followed the law. And then Jesus says, but there's still one thing that you lack. Sell everything that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And then come and follow me. And the young man became very sad because he was very rich. That's where his idol was. So in what ways do we as humans, and especially as Christians, turn work into our idol? Oh, let
1: me count the ways. Mm-hmm. Just, know I mean, it's your fulfillment, it's your, especially work, you know, mm-hmm. like we do on Capitol Hill, you think that you're going to change the world in.
0: Absolutely.
2: Mm-hmm. It's through work that you make money, and some people really—I mean—our hearts can be seduced by money. We just have lots of
0: it. Yeah. Never have enough.
2: And having for ourselves rather than to use for
0: hmm Mark.
2: As as we're successful at work, then we feel as though we're we're responsible for that success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Work is also an outlet for some people that are looking for an escape from from other work that's that's waiting for
0: them at home. Yeah. That's right. Good. So we know that after the fall, work is compulsory for survival. However, we learn in Deuteronomy 8 and Ecclesiastes 5 that God does graciously allow us to enjoy some of our work and see fruit despite the curse of futility. Yet with all good gifts from God, we can lose sight of their true source and true purpose. The trouble starts when our pursuit of enjoyment or influence or status in our work begins to make our work the source of ultimate satisfaction or meaning for us. Work becomes the primary consumer of our time, our attention, and our passions. And when that happens, work has become our God. So how do we know if we are idolizing our jobs? I've got three points on the handout we can follow. Um, our work becomes the primary source of our satisfaction. Because work can demand so much of our time and command so much of our attention, it is easy to look to our work for fulfillment and to job performance and success for meaning and satisfaction. Some look to their accomplishments with great self-satisfaction, like King Nebuchadnezzar. And denies God the glory that is due to him. Others believe it is noble to only do work they are passionate about doing and nothing less. These attitudes elevate work beyond a role that it was intended to play. So does work fill a big need in your life? Do you find your mood radically shifting as your professional accomplishments go up and down? Our jobs were never intended to provide the satisfaction and fulfillment that we're demanding from them. A second way to uh, evaluate is our work is all about being the best so that you can make a name for yourself. In Ecclesiastes 9.10, we are called to do our work with excellence. However, our motivation for excellence will determine if we are worshiping the Lord or seeking our own glory. Genesis 11.14, the Tower of Babel and the Plain of Shinar, Uh, reads, Then they, the men of Shinar, said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The problem is our desire to be recognized as being good at something. In verse 7, God comes down from heaven, puts an end to the prideful building project, and does disperse them over the face of the earth. And we never do learn their names. But one chapter later, in chapter 12, God calls out to an idol-worshiping pagan named Abram and offers him land, seed, and blessing. And in verse 2, he specifically promises him, I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that was probably a better deal than what those in the land of Shinar with their tower had hoped to accomplish, to have God make your name great. But we do not need to work to make our name great, because our names were already made great when they were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. James 4.6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we do well when we leave the name exalting to God and let him exalt us or humble us for our good as he sees fit. Another problem with seeking a name for ourselves is that even when we succeed, the idolatry of success can leave us feeling like it's just not good enough. We have this unrelenting perfectionism. And if we don't succeed, then the idolatry of success can lead to soul-destroying discouragement or grim resignation. It's like cotton candy at the fairground. You see it, you want it, you eat it, but it doesn't fill you up and you're all sticky afterwards and there's this letdown of the sugar burning off. If you want to see that play out, read the rest of Ecclesiastes. Uh, our last way to evaluate if work has become our idol is because work becomes primarily about making a difference in the world. How important uh, is it to you that your work makes a noticeable difference in the world? I mean, this desire can be coming from a right place, and again, depending on whom you are serving. But we elevate this desire to idolatry when we believe that the value of our work is determined by its impact on the world. Also when we look down on other work less important than ours because we cannot discern a difference that person's work is making. It is very easy for pride to squeeze God out of the focus as we take credit for the things God is accomplishing through us. And it's also then easy to blame God when we don't see the results we had hoped for and wonder, doesn't God care about us? And this drive for measurable change can lead to us neglecting other secondary callings because we think we are doing something good in serving others. As a personal example, when I was promoted to chief of staff at the age of 27, making me one of the youngest on the hill at the time, I recognized the danger of getting a big head. I'd also seen the deterioration of my predecessor, so I did prayerfully consider and reflect upon what accepting the promotion might mean for Sarah and me. When people would express amazement or congratulate me because of my meteoric rise, I would deflect and say all the promotion meant was that I had a bigger bullseye on my back. But inside, I loved hearing the praise. And the fact that I had arisen from intern to chief of staff in five years and and i had been promoted over my peers for whom I had interned surely had to count for something. Humble exterior, prideful interior. And the result was me completely fumbling my first real management challenge. I overestimated my own wisdom, I was wise in my own eyes, and ended up crushing a colleague with my words. And then later avoided directly addressing a thorny staffing issue due to wanting to be liked and approved by the peers I had been promoted over. Fear of man. And that led to a much bigger staffing issue and the need to find a bunch of new staff. Work had become an idol and had failed me, as all idols do. Every form of idolatry and every act of worshiping something that is not worthy of our worship will bear the same bitter fruit in our life. Good and godly desires quickly become transformed into idols, producing covetousness. I wish I had his office or his title. Or comparison. How come he gets paid more than me when I, I work so hard, so much harder than him? Or dissatisfaction, what is the point of working so hard on the report if I don't get complimented for it? Or competitiveness, I know, honey, tonight's the recital, but I really need to crank on this presentation if I'm finally going to get ahead of you-know-who. Idolatry is the classic bait-and-switch. It promises fulfillment, but they never deliver. Instead we are left with growing dissatisfaction and unfulfilled longings, and we become a slave to what's next. As in, that didn't fulfill me, so what's next? So what are some practical ways that we can guard against making work an idol for us? Just willingly, willingly mm-hmm. bringing your mind into subjection, yeah. into the mind of Christ. Yeah, That's right. Peter? You know,
2: that, that line of idolatry gets really blurred when you're in vocational ministry mm-hmm. because you think you're doing things for the Lord, and yet you're. And so, um, practically, mm-hmm. we're supposed to raise up a, a prayer team praying for us to protect mm-hmm. us from mm-hmm. those kinds Interesting is that our executive leadership team, at our ministry, they don't have their own prayer team, which to oh. me was kind of eye opening. Mm. You know, they, that's something practical is to know that you have people praying, you know, praying with you and for you. Yeah,
0: accountability. Um, well, Sandy mentioned, you know, it first starts with us. We need to repent, uh, repent from the fact that we've turned a gift from God into an idol. And we need to refocus our view of work as a way to worship God. And this posture puts an end to expecting gifts from God to replace God in providing us with purpose and meaning. Work as an idol then loses its attraction because we have a different, more satisfying longing. Listen to Paul pray in Ephesians 3. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints... What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, no more elusive goalposts, just the process of being filled with the fullness of God that surpasses comprehension until we see Him face to face. Now, making work an idol is a problem for some of us, but the other end of the spectrum is that we can become idle in our work. And I confess that I've suffered from this one too. Just as assigning too much significance to or over-identifying with our work makes it an idol, assigning too little significance or under-identifying with our work results in us becoming idle in our work. Uh, someone could turn to Second Thessalonians 3, 16, or 3, 6 through 15 Be Eric, if you could read that. Yeah, 3, 6 through
2: 15. <clears throat> now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that From any brother who was walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you. But to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother.
0: Thank you. So we see that Paul issues, uh, the, he says the word command three times, which is a very strong uh, posture to take. Why do you think this is so important to Paul? Why is he issuing commands about idleness?
1: Tax the church, tax their reputation, and Paul had addressed it with them before in person. And they're still in that rut of heresy, so he's pull out the big guns. He's just apostolic authority and power and mm-hmm.
0: command.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. He also knows it's viral. Yeah. And we need to, you know, cut this thing off before it before
0: it gets home. Yeah. That's right. Idol worship may produce uh, competition, but being idle uh, wants camaraderie. <laughs> Draws us in. I think
1: idleness also um, leaves us vulnerable to temptations to Mm sin. If you look at David when, I think the passage talks about at the time when kings go out to war, David
0: was idle and very much Mm -hmm. vulnerable to falling into sin. That's right. Great point. So some forms of idleness are obvious, right? Calling in with a fake sick day just so you can avoid work. Hmm. Or it's an attitude. You know, I'm just not feeling passionate about my work lately. Or certain behaviors at work. You check your personal social media a little too long. Or you're looking for shortcuts to get the job done, even if it means it doesn't really rise to your abilities or the expectations of the boss. Another name for this is slackivism, defined as measures you take uh, only to do the minimum required to get through the day. What was that word? Slackivism. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hopefully that doesn't resonate with anybody here, but I'm sure we've all gone through times where it's like, "Mm, yeah. A more subtle and dangerous form of idleness is spiritual, though. Failing to remember or recognize God's purposes for us in the workplace. This can lead to inactivity of the heart and an inability or unwillingness to see or embrace God's purposes in the work he's given us to do. In the Gospel at Work, uh, Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert identify the fruit of this rebellious heart. Despondency, joylessness, complaining, discontentedness, laziness, passivity, people-pleasing, score-settling, corner-cutting, and Monday-dreading gloom. And when a Christian displays this kind of fruit in their work, they blend in with the world. And they not only have nothing to offer their neighbor by way of love or service, they're at risk of wandering away from the Lord they are supposed to love with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So how do we know when we have started to become idle in our work? Uh, Our worksheet, we've got three we can go through. Um, Our work is merely a means to an end, a place to serve our own needs. This is the mindset that says, if I'm not passionate about my work, I'm only going to do enough not to get fired. Or, I hate my job, but it pays for a lifestyle that I enjoy living. Or, looks like someone who spends hours on the weekend perfecting their golf game, but settles for mediocrity in the office during the work week. This attitude runs contrary to 1 Corinthians 10.31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And as with last week, we see there are no conditions or compartmentalization here do all to the glory of God. Number two, we are always frustrated by our work. Now we know from Genesis 3 that the ground is cursed and so is our work because of our rebellion. Work will be frustrating. It's a primary reason it is not worthy of our worship. But when we allow the effects of the fall to overshadow our primary and secondary callings, then we are more prone to forget who we are serving and find that work not only fails to fulfill us, it downright frustrates us. And our hearts grow bitter and angry. However, Romans 5, 3-5 offers us the right perspective. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. But God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Number three, our work becomes divorced from our Christian discipleship. We've seen several passages now that make it clear that our lives are not broken up into compartments. How we live on Sunday is to be consistent with how we live Monday through Saturday. We cannot reconcile witnessing to our neighbors on the weekends and at special church events by working no differently than the world in our workplace. And some Christians will even regress to the point of treating coworkers with contempt or expressing anger in front of colleagues justifying supply theft or fudging the timesheet, cutting corners or stretching the ethical boundaries. To live this way is to fail to recognize that our work here and now, on the big days and the mundane days, is an expression of our Christian faith. When you do the job in which God has placed you, you are worshiping Him and following Jesus. So when you make a cup of espresso as instructed, you are worshiping God and following Jesus. When you are precise and don't cut corners on the inventory counting task, despite the size, you are worshiping God and following Jesus. And We'll talk more in a minute about how to have a positive witness for Jesus in your workplace, but idleness at work destroys that witness. The cure for idleness is the same as worshiping work as an idol. Repent and remember that God has a purpose for our work. He delights in you when you perform the work which he calls you to. And as an example from last week with Martin Luther, God may be fulfilling his promise to provide daily bread through your truck delivery job. He may be be delivering on his promise to clothe us through your work measuring and cutting at a fabric store. He may be delivering on his promise to repay evil through your investigation and proper use of authority. From what we know, Jesus was likely a carpenter or a builder, Peter was a fisherman, and Paul was a tent maker. And all of those jobs would have known manual toil, made more difficult by the fall. But it is hard to imagine Jesus or Peter or Paul being lazy or idle in that work. So may we too keep work in its proper place and do it all for the glory of God. A third consequence from the fall is the challenge of trials. For the sake of time, let's briefly look at two areas where we can especially expect challenges at work. People and ethics. First, the challenges with people. Unless you work on a remote island, your work will involve other people. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners, and that means we all have to deal with the effects of each other's sins. We see this on the Beltway, in line at Starbucks, in the office on Monday mornings. And when that call arrives from your children's school, or for the homeschoolers out there when the call arrives at work from mom, there are inconsiderate coworkers, demanding customers, insulting constituents, competitors inside and outside your organization, sabotaging your work, and colleagues or bosses who take credit for your ideas or successes. So let's look at a few quick examples uh, of especially challenging people that the Bible identifies for us. Psalm 1-1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So we see wicked, sinners, and scoffers. Second Peter 3.3 3 says, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So what exactly is a scoffer? <laughs> we know we don't like the word, but what does a scoffer do? It everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A scoffer is one who mocks and criticizes. On a good day, they pity Christians for all the fun they are missing, while most days they jeer at you, at least inwardly, because you self-righteously want to take away other people's rights. The scoffer is the scientist, described in Romans 1, who studies the work of the Creator but suppresses the truth and whose mind becomes futile and whose heart is darkened. His confidence is in his rationality and reasoning, and that gives him license to mock Christians who cling to silly, unproven superstitions. Yet in verse 22 of Romans 1, Paul identifies him as claiming to be wise, they actually become fools, and in verse 25, they exchange the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever." So we have a lot of scoffers in the world, and some of us have to put up with them in the workplace every day. But beyond being mocked, we will be outright hated. Jesus prepares us for this in John 15:18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Even without knowing you're a Christian, people are still rude and demanding and inconsiderate, slanderous, and selfish. Bosses will try to take advantage of you. Colleagues will throw you under the bus for their mistakes. Kids will be ungrateful for the sacrifices you make in homeschooling them or complain about taking out the trash that is full from all the meals you made them that day. But sometimes this gets escalated when your faith is made known. A boss may not respect your time on Sundays now or may sneer at you when you don't go out with the guys to various entertainment clubs after work. Once they spot that Bible on your desk, you become a bullseye for more work, unfair treatment, and sometimes outright hostility and persecution. People like retired three-star General Jerry Boykin, who was just disinvited from speaking at a prayer breakfast in Fort Riley, Kansas, because of harassment from faith-persecuting modern-day Saul Mickey Weinstein. Pray for his conversion. Has anyone here had an experience with persecution at work that they can share briefly? We'll move right no, along.
1: Not from management.
0: Yeah. But from a co-worker. Yeah.
1: Um, there's a, uh, a lady at my work who uh, was talking to me in social until she found out I was a Christian. Then she uh, didn't speak to me at all until it was my last day, Mm. and then she opened up again. Mm. It was
0: uh, was fun. Mm. Well, despite the challenges of these people, we do well to remind ourselves that these are all people who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, just like us. But they also may be future brothers and sisters in Christ. They are our neighbors, so we are to love them. Even if they are our enemy, we are to love them, as we'll see in a few minutes. One colleague of mine was such an example of doing this well that when she was hired, the chief of staff at the time and several of the other staff threatened to quit if she wasn't fired. They had been engaging in some morally questionable activities. Now, she was not self-righteous, but the love of God was flowing out of her to such a degree that their response resembled John 3.20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. They persecuted her, but she did not quit. The boss did not fire her, and those very staff quit in protest, including the chief. But they were replaced with people attracted to the light, with hearts of service for others. One intern in particular was so attracted to the light that she became a Christian due to this woman's character, integrity, and witness. And this is the same godly colleague that God used to bring me from Chicago to D.C. in the first place, and help set an example of what it looked like to be a Christian in the political arena. And Her example helped me shape how I would come to view our last area of focus under um, under the fall, ethical challenges. Without giving inappropriate details, have any of you ever been asked to do something for work that was flat out unethical? What about something more gray? Technically not unethical, but deceitful or kind of violated stated policy or a rule. 2 Corinthians 5.17 states that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has come and passed away. Uh, behold, the new has come. And in Romans 12.2, we are advised to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our, our mi- of our minds. That by testing, we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. On the Hill, we are uh, subject to significant pressure to fundraise hundreds of thousands of dollars, and there are plenty of people willing to help you cut corners to achieve your goals. I remember the first time I got a call from a guy who said he was meeting with the finance committee and it would improve our prospects significantly if we were to support a particular bill they liked. I was shocked that he so blatantly assumed my character was for sale. I reported that call to the Ethics Committee and made it clear that he should not contact our office again. But I soon learned that that would not be the last time those quid pro quo situations would arise. In fact, one of God's mercies to me was a phone call that was never returned. Early in my chief of staff years, I was advised, unbeknownst at the time poorly, that Indian tribes had a lot of campaign money and that I needed to call this one particular lobbyist. So I left a voicemail for Jack Abramoff, and he never called me back. One of my other, <laughs> <laughs> praise the Lord, one of my other uh, colleagues, young chief of staff, was not so lucky, and he ended up exchanging his pinstripe suit for an orange jumpsuit, just like Mr. Abramoff. So there, but for the grace of God, may I have trod. All workers, including non Christians, due to the pressures of profit, success, and significance, will find themselves at some point being asked to do something. Or tempted to do something that violates their conscience. Maybe bend the truth in a resume or job interview. Or cover over a mistake or make it look like someone else did it. Maybe tempted to take a shortcut or cheat in a competition. But Proverbs 10.9 guides us that whoever walks in integrity walks securely. But he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. In chapter 28, verse 6, uh, Solomon expounds further. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity Than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Ethics can be tricky, but as Christians, we are called to live to a higher standard. The Holy Spirit will guide us and clarify what is right and wrong. We need to do the right thing, even if it means losing our job, or failing a paper, or ultimately losing our life. We should be mindful of how Christ would conduct himself in those situations so as to not call unnecessary attention to us or appear self righteous in doing so. But should you find yourself facing a challenge, challenging ethical situation, ask the Lord for guidance, spend time in prayer, search out the word, and speak to another Christian or one of the elders here at Delray. So those are the toils, temptations, and trials of our work as a result of the fall. Now let's use the rest of our time looking at the redemption, redefinition, and reward of Christ's work on the cross and how that changes our work. Because Jesus' work changes everything. When John the Baptist saw Jesus approaching, in John 1.29, he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Luke 19.10, Jesus declared his mission was to seek and save the lost. So this was Christ's true work, to be the Redeemer. As I mentioned earlier, he came to pay the penalty of our sin through his death on the cross and to rise from the dead so that all who repent and believe in him can be forgiven of their sins and redeemed from the curse. The good news is that Jesus fulfilled this mission. In John 17, 4, he tells the Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And two chapters later on the cross, he cried out, It is finished. Hallelujah. So as we look around us it was has become of our culture, debates over bathrooms, marriage rights for throuples, physical assaults over physical uh, political opinions, and open season hostility toward those who express faith in Christ, it's no wonder that we long for the redemption of our culture or our hometown or our workplace. But we need to understand that while Christ's work brought redemption to people, it did not and does not redeem cultures or institutions or workplaces. We remain in a fallen world with cursed ground and toilsome work, and our work is still by the sweat of our face, It can be futile and is compulsory for survival. So when considering Christ's redemptive work, we may be tempted to ask, as a certain presidential candidate did, what difference does that make now? In the gospel and work, the authors say it doesn't change the play, but it does change us, the actors in the play. And that change is critical in three ways. First, redeemed people repent of idolatrous attitudes toward work because their identity is no longer in work in Christ. Paul fleshes this out for us in Colossians 3, 2-4, where we are to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For we have died, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. So the gospel changes what our hearts are set on because our identity is now in Christ. And remember, whatever we do, we are to work heartily as working for the Lord and not for men. And in doing so, we will not make work our idol, nor will we become idle in our work. The gospel doesn't change the conditions of our work, but it does change the condition of our hearts. (coughs) Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26 delivers some of the best news in the Bible. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and i will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh praise the lord second because we are enabled to repent and have repented as redeemed people we can once again worship god through our work colossians 3:17 whatever you do in word or in deed do everything in the name of the lord jesus giving him thanks to god giving thanks to god the father through him And third, because we are redeemed, work is no longer about our name or our glory. It is about the name and the glory of the one who paid the price to redeem us. Even though our work takes place in a setting in which it is toilsome, futile, and compulsory, we can once again offer it freely as worship because as God's workmanship, we are simply offering back to him his own work product, which he prepared for us in advance. So how we work shows off how God has worked in us. We're running out of time, um, but let's consider four ways that Jesus' work redefines our callings in our work. First, we work for a new master. Romans 6.18 proclaims we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. While we once conducted our work according to the passions of the flesh and for the praise of men, we now work for Christ. So this includes crunching numbers at work, changing diapers at home, filling the Lord's supper tray at church, or having a cookout with our neighbor. Second, we have a new assignment. When we work for our new king, King Jesus, our assignment is to do all to the glory of God. So no matter what you do for work, you are working for something different than your non-Christian colleagues. And if we keep this in mind, then we won't fall into the trap of assuming that God has placed us where he has because he needs us there. Because he can always do the job better than us. He placed us there for his glory. His ultimate aim is not the results of our productivity, but our worship. Worship is a whole life response to God, to who God is, and to what God uh, has done for us through his Son. And we can do this because of the third change. We have been given new hearts. None of this work is possible in our flesh before our primary calling. We read the passage in Ezekiel in which God promises to give us a new heart. And this new heart of flesh is now capable of loving the Lord our God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. This heart gives us the grace to love God and love others, including that boss and those co-workers. We can work with a new confidence that comes from trusting Jesus. Philippians 4.19 promises, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Fourth, we can, have a new, um, we can have new responses. So if we think back to those annoying coworkers and those demanding customers and that boss who is persecuting you, the world offers us one solution, an eye for an eye. All's fair in love and war. However, empowered by our new hearts with a new assignment, serving a new master, we are to respond differently. Uh, the worksheet has a list of 10 uh, suggested ways that we are to respond from Scripture. Uh, and how we are expected to interact with other humans who are also made in the image of God, whether they be sinners or saints. We'll breeze through the list, but the references are there, and I think you would find it rewarding and encouraging to to read those. So here we go. Love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Love our enemies. Do not repay evil for evil. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Tame our tongue. Our words should be seasoned with grace, and we should look for evidences of grace in in others. We should remove the plank in our own eyes first, and speak the truth in love, and reprove and correct where possible. One of the best ways to change how you view and serve others is to pray for them. Pray for your boss. Pray for that coworker. Pray that you would adorn the gospel as we read in Titus 2. The last area uh, that we receive from Christ's work is new rewards. In John, 1 John 2, 15-17, he encourages us not to love the world or the things of the world, because the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So working for money, power, fame, or comfort is foolish and fleeting. Colossians 3 again mentions that when we work for the Lord, from the Lord, we will receive the inheritance for our reward. First Peter 1 Peter 1.4, we are promised an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading in heaven for us. And Matthew instructs us to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. We know from the parables of the talents and the minas that faithful service on earth during Christ's absence will yield a greater share of him and his work when we serve him in his presence. So we no longer need to look to our jobs to provide us with significance, meaning, purpose or reward, because the greatest rewards we can ever have are secured for us in Christ Jesus. Our happiness is secured elsewhere. And with the security in Christ, we now experience freedom in our work and freedom from our work. Here are four specific freedoms. Freedom to trust. We are promised in Romans 8.28 that for those who love God, all things work together for good. those who were called according to his purpose. Since we are called according to his purpose, we know that successes, but also obstacles and opposition in our work are for our good and for God's glory. So let let Jesus be the anchor of your trust. We also have the freedom to rest. Proverbs 23.4 tells us, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Rest is a good thing and part of God's original design for work. The pursuit of leisure is to exalt the gift of rest to the place of an idol. But failure to rest tells God that you think the fate of the world depends on you. Newsflash, it doesn't. So embrace the gift of rest and enjoy the fruit of your labors. We have the freedom to serve. Since all of our true needs are met in Christ, we are free to serve others freely. Galatians 6.10, so just as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. And in Philippians 2.4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what does this look like at work? You can build time into work to help a coworker, or to bring coffee to your team, or to listen to a personal problem during a break, or help someone catch up on a project. And lastly, we are free, we have the freedom to excel. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine 29 tells us, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. No one really pursues mediocrity, but through sin we may settle for it. However, through Christ we can pursue excellence because we know he will equip us for the work for his glory. And one of the best ways to begin to evangelize our co-workers is to be excellent at what we do and to do it joyfully. Our motivation comes not from recognition or results, but from the opportunity to glorify our king. Daniel, Nehemiah, Joseph, and Mordecai were all elevated to service to their king because of the excellence of their work. How much more should our attitude, energy, and effort befit service to our king, the king of kings? So while the world and our work is cursed with toils and temptations and trials because of our rebellion, The work of Christ Jesus changes everything. He redeems people, he redefines work, and offers us new rewards. And just as our forefather Adam once worked in God's presence for his glory, free from the curse of sin, we will one day likewise work in our Father's presence for his glory, free from the curse of sin. Thanks be to God. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Any final questions or comments? We've run out of time. Praise the Lord. Um, Brian, would you close us? Okay.
2: Father, we praise you for your amazing work of redemption.
0: Mm-hmm. Father, we praise you for your good design of work which glorifies mm-hmm. you done in the way that you have designed it. Father, we all live that experiences the the effects of the fall. So, Father, we pray that you would fill us with your
1: spirit, that we might be bold in the workplace, in any, any workplace that you call in all of us, that we might do all of our work, everything that we do for your glory. God, give us humility as we do that. And, Father, make our daily work be an exercise of thanksgiving and worship to you, our great king. We pray that you would give us strength to do that by Your Spirit. And